Okay, hello everyone and welcome to ACTUS Radio, the nation's only radio program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. ACTUS Radio is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and ACTUS. Today, Wednesday, November 8th, marks our 82nd show. My name is Brian Murphy, Director of ACTUS, Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists, and I'm your host, as usual, for today's program, ACTUS Mailbag, Listener Questions. I'm joined today by a familiar co-host to you all, Alan Frady. Alan is a CDI education direct CDI education specialist for us here at Actus. Uh, he teaches clinical documentation improvement boot camps and serves as a subject matter expert. You can read his background there. He does have 12 years of coding consultant, two years of coding director. Uh, he has nursing experience and uh, experience as a case manager in, in cardiovascular care. And I'm pleased to have him back on the show. So welcome, Alan. Thanks for having me on again, Brian. Absolutely. And next, I'd like to introduce today's industry guest, another perhaps familiar face to regular listeners of Actus Radio. We have with us today uh, James Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy is president of CDI MD Physician Champions, a Nashville based group of physicians, coders, and clinicians engaged nationwide as CDI physician advisors, ICD 10 medical informaticists, and DRG and HCC compliance advocates. Uh, you can read Dr. Kennedy's bio there on the screen, but just by way of background, he, uh, he previously served on the Actus Advisory Board, and he's also the lead instructor for our Actus uh, Boot Camp, the physician advisor's role in CDI, and I'm glad to have him on the show to tackle some, uh, some pretty tough listener questions. So welcome to the program, Dr. Kennedy. Thank you, Brian. All right. Well, as I do with every show, we're going to start off with a poll question, um, not really related to today's topic, but one that I'm interested in asking you all and uh, all of our audience. It's, you know, today's topic is a little bit off the beaten path, and I want to see what you guys think about Actus Radio. So again, the, the question reads, what suggestions or changes do you have for Actus Radio in 2018? Would you perhaps like to see more opportunity for audience questions? Maybe we'll, we should have asked this at the end of today's show. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> uh, but more, uh, maybe more clinical guests or speakers, those clinical topics, uh, more innovative ideas or case studies perhaps you're interested in, uh, more leadership management topics, stuff maybe of pertinence for CDI directors or managers. Maybe you like the show exactly as it is and you want to keep it the same, which is cool, but you don't have to pick that answer. So again, what suggestions or changes do you have for our program in 2018? Um, those are your options. We've got about 70% of our audience that has voted and uh, we'll come back to that in just a few minutes at the end, um, end of our show today. I'll go ahead and we'll close that out. Great. All right. Well, let's um let's jump right in. So as I mentioned our guest today is Dr. James Kennedy. We got Alan with us today. You know, today's show is a little different than our usual interview format and instead we'll be I'll be posing our guests um some questions we've received from listeners to Actus Radio. These are actual questions, not made up. So I'm going to go ahead and jump right in, in the interest of time. 
Um, question one reads, as a CDI group, we've been struggling with hypertension and definitions of emergency, urgency, and crisis. We've looked up references and are still a bit puzzled as to when to place a query for these diagnoses. One reference we have found makes emergency sound like it is extremely rare and hypertensive urgency maybe shouldn't even be admitted to the hospital. So do you have any advice on these diagnoses? Maybe we'll start with, uh, with you, Dr. Kennedy, and I'm happy to pull up whatever references you might want me to do. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Brian. Great question. If you could pull up the slide deck that I sent you, there's a number of articles that describe the overall concept of the hypertensive crisis, okay? And in the hypertensive crisis, uh, this will be on slide three, this is described as, as uncontrolled hypertension with a systolic blood pressure of <clears throat> 180 or greater, or, it's not and, it's or, a diastolic blood pressure of 120 or greater. So that is the concept of hypertensive crisis. And then the split is, of course, hypertensive urgency with mild symptoms, headache, giddiness, uh, those sorts of things, or hypertensive emergency with in-organ involvement, which can be decompensated heart failure, acute kidney injury, a hypertensive encephalopathy. And the reference for this is given on, <clears throat> on this slide. Uh, before we go to children, Alan, anything from your perspective on this? Just a call out to the um, the coding side, the CDI side, who, who, and I'm, you're probably going to elaborate on this, but basically we were trying to make a square peg fit into a round hole because the hypertensive crisis and emergency are the higher levels whereas the urgency is, is not considered anything. And the, the way it is laid out in coding is a complete mismatch to how the terms are expressed clinically. We, we even went so far as to try to come up with our own criteria for when you might try to report crisis versus emergency. And it just, it just doesn't fit with the clinical definitions. All right, so let's go to the children, the pediatric definition. This will be on slide four. Uh, this is a little bit tougher because blood pressures are very different based upon the child's age. And, but, the, but the concept is still the same. Uh, hypertensive crisis includes hypertensive emergency and hypertensive urgency. It's an all-encompassing term of which in children, hypertensive emergency <clears throat> has signs of, of hypertensive encephalopathy. On the other hand, hypertensive urgency is, has less serious symptoms, such as severe headache or vomiting. And if we could go to maybe the next slide, uh, the next slide, this just, you know, just, just shows us there's just the wide variation of the of blood pressures that we see in children. Uh, so what might uh, be considered a normal blood pressure in an adult would be considered hypertensive in a child. So having these uh, references available, particularly if you're working in a pediatric hospital, uh, it's gonna be essential to help and call that out. Now, if we go to the next slide, Alan, I think this is what uh, I think you were going at. The problem is not the code so much. 
I think the coding is correct. Hypertensive crisis is a broad term, which has greater specificity of hypertensive urgency and emergency, where the problem came was in the assignment of the CCs. They gave the, the generic term hypertensive crisis CC status, whereas the, the more specific hypertensive urgency is not a CC. In my personal opinion, hypertensive crisis should be queried uh, for the more specific term, particularly if we know that the it's an urgency and, quote, you would lose your CC, but it's correct documentation, correct coding, clinically valid. Alan, any perspective from your, any pushback on that? Yeah, that's exactly what I was getting at, Dr. Kennedy. Uh, I would, if I would have made these codes out, I actually would have left hypertensive crisis as the broad uh, category, and I would have just dropped the I-16.9 completely and had either urgency or emergency where you had to pick one. What's happening is a lot of people are trying to go down and get the unspecified crisis and take their CC, even though that's actually a less specific diagnosis. Yes, and so we're hoping that when Medicare, Medicare is going to completely redo the CC-MCC table. Uh, the deadline for turning in your suggestions was last week. However, I bet you if you wanted to write them, you could probably tell them of that. And this certainly will be commented on when the new IPPS rule comes out next year. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I mean, that was a great, great first question. We got a few more. So why don't we, if you're all set here, we'll move on to our question two from the, from the mailbag, the virtual mailbag. All right, so this one reads, when does a traumatic subdural hemorrhage, or SDH, turn into a chronic SDH, if ever? I see patients that come in with a history of motor vehicle collision, or MVC, and previous traumatic SDH, and they admit months later for a chronic SDH, which was originally caused by trauma. Does this go to the chronic SDH, which goes to non-traumatic, or to the traumatic SDH? It's a bit of a coding question here. Dr. Kennedy, do you want to start again with this one about maybe some other Yeah, this is kind of tough. This is kind of tough. I'm not aware of any literature that that classifies acute, subacute, or chronic. Um, I think that's going to be in the eyes of the beholder. An acute probably would be less than a week. Uh, subacute, you know, greater than a week and less than a month. If it lasts over a month, then it falls into being chronic. But that's certainly in the eyes of the beholder, um, and um, and certainly in the in the clinical context. Alan, have you run into anything different on that? I have not, um, and I, I can't find a way to properly report both traumatic and chronic um, at the same time. So I think that what we're going to have to do is let's go to the next slide. Uh, uh, the next slide, the predicament we've got is just kind of a weird way that the ICD-10 index, you know, handles this, okay? Because they have subdural hematoma, you know, which is listed, but then they also have subdural hemorrhage, you know, that's listed. So notice that subdural hematoma in the index codes to a traumatic injury you know, as a default, okay? Unless the physician is explicit 
you know that it, it's non-traumatic, of which further study would have to be would have to be done. So let's go to the next slide again. Uh, in the the next slide, slide eight. There, uh, we again see that hematoma subdural. The default is is injury. Okay, but then if it's non-traumatic, okay, then it goes to hemorrhage intracranial. But the documentation would have to be clear that it was non-traumatic in nature, uh, not just some like an elderly uh, citizen who has a spontaneous uh, subdural. We don't know. We don't have a history of a fall. The physician would have to be very clear that that's non-traumatic in nature. Go to slide nine uh, on the next slide again. But we have a little bit of a difficult. We have a difficult different issue if the doctor documents subdural hemorrhage. Notice that hemorrhage is not hematoma, okay? And, and maybe a little bit of a subtlety uh, in the difference of words. The default for subdural hemorrhage, however, is non-traumatic, whereas subdural hematoma uh, is, is traumatic. And then let's go to the next slide, number 10. Uh, this has, again, this is where the acute, subacute, chronic comes in. These apply only to the non-traumatic uh, subdural hemorrhages, whereas on the traumatic, you still have the initial encounter where there's the active treatment phase. The subsequent encounter in which the active treatment is over and you're in the healing phase uh, and the sequela. Uh, which is after all healing has subsided. I mean, I don't know, Al, uh, Brian, if I got anywhere close to answering this question. Uh, Alan, do you want to add to that in any respect? Just, um, I think most of the time when we're talking about a chronic subdural, we are talking about a hematoma and not a hemorrhage. Um, and... You know, the defaults for it don't necessarily make a lot of sense, depending on the clinical circumstance. So I like the suggestion uh, that I think you're going to make on this, though. Well, the suggestion, I think, is my gut feeling is that these should be considered to be traumatic in nature. Any subdural hemorrhage or uh, hematoma should be considered sub... Uh, most physicians will document subdural hematoma. They won't document subdural hemorrhage. And as such, those were traumatic in nature unless the physician explicitly says that it's non-traumatic. But I think that the right answer is, is that we need to write the, um, the National Center for Health Statistics or somebody needs to send a couple of records to Coding Clinic uh, to help us understand the difference between a hematoma and a hemorrhage in this regard. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I know that was a that was a tough coding question. So thanks to our audience member who, who sent me that one. Managed to throw us a curveball there. All right. Let's go to uh, let's go to question three. This one reads: At my hospital, we have a routine problem. We generate a clarification that is documented over the course of a week. Then the attending physician changes and the new physician does not put the diagnosis in the discharge summary, so it's not coded. Also, there are times the coder does not generate a back-end query to verify the diagnosis. 
Another issue we have with discharge summaries occurs when we generate a clarification that the nurse practitioner answers documents repeatedly. However, because the attending does not put it in the discharge summary, it's not coded. Many times this is a surgical case that is discharged on the day there is not NP coverage. When we ask the coder the answer, um, is the NP documented, not the attending? So to summarize, how many times does a diagnosis need to be documented to be coded, even if it does not make the discharge summary? And is there a certain threshold for the level of provider who needs to provide that diagnosis? Common problem, I think. Um, so I'll turn it over again to you guys to, to weigh in on this one. Alan, you go first on this one. Hello. Sorry, I hit the mute button. Um, so this is one of those areas where I think there's a huge disconnect to, between how it's done uh, in the real world and how it's stated officially. It's kind of like when you learned it in school versus got out in the real world. So, you know, Access works very closely with HEMA, and we try to stick as closely as possible to all the official guidelines. And the official guidelines say that you don't always need it in the discharge summary. Uh, and I really try to hold everyone to that standard. But be that as it may, the reality of it is Many commercial contracts and even individual auditors uh, do not abide by that rule. And so you end up with a best practice standard that looks different than the official guideline. The best practice would, of course, always be to have it in the discharge summary, even though that's a disconnect with what the official guideline states. And a good lawyer knows the law, the better lawyer knows the law, the judge and the jury. Uh, the law, as Alan says, the law says that if it's documented by a doctor, it's coded, you know, end of story. However, the guidelines do say that there has to be consistent documentation. And I like Dr. Trey Lacharte's rules of three. I like to see diagnoses, particularly acute diagnoses, documented once when diagnosed, documented a second time to say it's better or worse, and a third in the discharge summary. On the other hand, uh, on, the, on the other hand, since recovery auditors uh, have a different perspective, uh, we have to be sensitive to that. Uh, at the end of the day, though, uh, it doesn't have to be in the discharge summary, but that's a best practice, and we have to be sensitive to the coder uh, because they just don't like writing appeals; they get burned. Yeah, that that's a very common one, and uh, agreed that it is. The official guidelines differ from what auditors and et cetera like to see, but um, appreciate you guys weighing in on that. I think we have time for one more question that we had um, asked prior, so we'll we'll get right to that, so we can get wrapped up here. Um, final question: Recently, we were recommended to ask for hypercoagulopathy when a when a patient has AFib. I researched pretty hard to find a supporting article, but not a strong one. This person sent um, a link to an online article that I can show in a minute for some support. However, they write doctors have questioned it. I personally have not queried because I don't agree on a couple points. The main one being there should be a way to say that it exists in one case of AFib and not another. Otherwise, it would be in all cases of AFib and then it should be considered inherent and not codable as a secondary diagnosis with ACC. So uh, what advice do you have for this situation? Uh, this is extremely controversial. Um, 
it is my per if I look at a general if I look at a general hematology text, I do not see atrial fibrillation as causing a an acquired um thrombophilia or an acquired uh hypercoagulable state. Uh atrial fibrillation is a localized phenomenon of stasis, which uh uh, clotting uh, revolves around the concept of Virchow's triad, which is stasis, endothelial dysfunction, and a hypercoagulable state. I'm not aware of atrial fibrillation leading to clots in other parts of the body, like the leg or the lung and those sorts of things. But on the other hand, there are these articles out there where um, uh, where there is the discussion of the hypercoagulable state that does occur uh, in the setting of atrial fibrillation. But I would also say that if I cut my hand, you know, with a knife, you know, I'm gonna have clotting, uh, you know, where the bleeding's occurring. And and yes, there's gonna be a hypercoagulable state where the where the cut occurred because the platelets and the tissue factors and every the Bob Willebrand's factors are all trying to uh, create a clot. Uh, but if the doctor documents it, uh, again, I want to push everybody. Everybody needs to read Coding Clinic, fourth quarter, 2017, page 110, which uh, discusses the uh, need for clinical definitions and the query process to ensure the clinical validity of the documented diagnoses. Alan, you may have a little different spin on this. Uh, not really. We we are not, you know, I've discussed this with some of the other educators, and we're not in a position to recommend that people just go out and start writing queries for hypercoagulability on AFib patients uh, as a matter of increasing your practice. As Dr. Kennedy said, it's very controversial. Probably more research needs to be done. Some further clinical validation needs to be done. If the now, I won't ever say never, and I won't, just like I won't always say that something always happens. So it could be legitimate. It's physicians documenting, and that's one thing. Whether you should place a query for it is a whole other thing. I would recommend you talk to your hematologist and get a policy in place for when you would and when you wouldn't. And tread very carefully, because their research is somewhat limited, as Dr. Kennedy said. I am not promoting it. I do not think it's the right thing to do. Uh, but I know that there are people out there doing it. And I have to, I would have to say you need to speak to your legal counsel on that. Yeah, it needs to be. It, it's one of those things that if you're going to do, you need to make sure it is very well documented. If I were doing that, I would want the doctor to specifically say why he thought there was a generalized hypercoagulable state. Was there increased platelets or von Wildemans? Did they do a blood test? Is there a hematologist? Is this something that you could actually defend or is it just? AFib equals hypercoagulability, because if, if it's just AFib equals hypercoagulability and you don't have the connecting dots in between, I would say you're at high risk for denials at that point, and possibly okay. worse. I'm pulling up an article that was shared in this question, so if folks are interested in looking up the reference, um, there's one here. I also shared one on a slide there a moment ago that Dr. Kennedy had sent in. And we can make these available after the program. Again, I always provide the links to these articles as well as Jim. I'm happy to supply the uh, those slides if you if you're okay with that. With our yeah, yeah, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. Great. 
All right. Well, I really appreciate you guys taking these um, these tough questions, some of them which don't have clear answers, but that's probably why they were asked. So I um, hope you guys, our listeners, enjoy the format of the show. I'm going to go ahead and share our audience poll at this point to see what people think of Access Radio and maybe what changes we might want to consider for 2018. So, again, we asked what suggestions or changes uh, do you have um, for Actus Radio in 2018? So 11% said more opportunity for audience questions. So we might want to consider another show like this from time to time. Uh, 22% are looking for more clinical guests and speakers. Majority, 46% more innovative ideas or case studies. Uh, 5% leadership or management topics, and 16% like the show as is. So um, I really appreciate this poll. Again, this was a sizable part of our audience, more than three quarters today, and it's something for me to take into consideration. I hope you guys, you know, maybe you can let me know after the show, you know where to reach me, bmurphy at actus.org, whether you like this program, this, this mailbag format. Um, if you have other suggestions, you know, innovative ideas and case studies. If there is a particular hospital you think I should feature, please let me know. I want to make the show yours and make it as um, usable and, and uh, informative as I can. And always appreciate the input. I don't know if Alan, you or Jim have any comments on Actus Radio and, and where, where you'd like to see it head or any, anything from the poll, but I do appreciate you guys uh, weighing in on some tough questions today. I just want to thank everybody who's listening and for your passion uh, in in this profession. The fact that you're listening to this today says that you're invested uh, in in this profession, and we just thank I thank you for the privilege of being part of it. Absolutely. All right, we're going to um, just do a quick in the news update here. Again, in the news is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession and to Actus. Today, I'd like to discuss a couple of recent articles in the news on deregulation and the current CMS administration's efforts to reduce administrative burden, particularly for physicians and hospitals. So what I'm showing here is a press release from CMS that came out uh, on October 30th. Um, so here we have CMS Administrator Seema Verma discussing the agency's efforts to streamline quality measures, reduce regulatory burden, and promote innovation. Um, just an interesting, you know, this is not so much a event per se or a regulation, but sort of a, an important message, I think, that uh, CMS is interested in, in reducing some of those regs, Seema uh, Verma notes here. We need to move from fee-for-service to a system that pays for value and quality, but how we define value and quality today is a problem. We all know what clinicians and hospitals have to report an array of measures to different payers. There are many steps involved in submitting them, um, taking time away from patients. Moreover, it's not clear whether all of these measures are actually improving patient care. And there is a link here to that I recommend you might want to check out as well. Again, I'll provide the link to the story uh, in the show notes, but how CMS is moving the Innovation Center in a new direction. Um, and it, this article also announces a new approach to quality measurement called Meaningful Measures, which will involve only assessing those core issues that are most vital to providing high quality care. So again, some, some criticism of the way that some of the quality metrics you might be familiar with, whether they actually do uh, measure quality. 
what's interesting too is that this was um, sort of echoed by the American Hospital Association in this article I'm showing here, making progress on regulatory relief. This is an editorial by AHA President Rick Pollack. You can read that article. Um, basically, it again sums up that the sheer volume of regulations on the books and the scope of change required in meeting them are outstripping the hospital field's ability to absorb them. Uh, the, this article cites an interesting AHA report which states that hospitals and health systems spend $39 billion a year on regulatory requirements affecting non-patient care. That's about $1,200 every time a patient's admitted to the hospital. Uh, the study found that an average-sized community hospital spends nearly $7.6 million annually to support compliance with regulations and dedicates nearly 60 staff members to regulatory compliance, more than one quarter of which are physicians and nurses. It doesn't say CDI, but I wonder whether, whether they consider that uh, part of this um, demographic. So, you know, hey, it's interesting that CMS is announcing this, AHA is behind it. I have to think that that means changes will happen, will be happening to, de, um, to maybe remove some of these regulations. Um, and worth keeping an eye on, we certainly will be as well to see how it might impact some of those familiar uh, quality programs you're used to interacting with. Any, any comments from, from Dr. Kennedy or Alan about this trend or these articles? So my my perspective has always been is that I think that as far as ICD-10 is concerned, uh, the cooperating parties have made it harder than it needs to be. Uh, we have very intelligent, very passionate uh, um, clinicians and HIM professionals who are looking at these records. And for them not to be able to clinically interpret the record for coding purposes is, I think, a tremendous regulatory burden and is part of the cost, you know, of running the CDI program. It's always amazed me that the recovery audit contractor can clinically interpret the record to remove a code, but we cannot clinically interpret the record to either add or delete a code. Uh, and as such, we have to have all the things that we're doing in the CDI arena. So, I, I hope that President Trump and uh, can remove some of this regulatory burden because it is very expensive. And um, but we'll just have to see what the, how the politics go. Right. All right. Well, let's just wrap up quickly here with a quick Actus update. Again, this is a regular feature bringing you what's going on with inside Actus. Um, if you haven't seen it already, we have just um, debuted the November-December 2017 edition of CDI Journal. We're focused on payment shifts, tools to adapt to a changing reimbursement landscape. So if you haven't checked out CDI Journal, um, it's available in a great new format. We've even got, hey, look at this, we've got hyperlinks to all of the, uh, the articles within. This is a very substantive issue. Um, really focused on some of the payment and regulatory updates. We've got some look, look back uh, at Actus uh, for 10 years, um, some important CDI encoding updates from the likes of our pocket guide authors. Hey, who, who's this guy down here? Oh, that's a familiar face on today's program. Alan Frady breaking down some of the new changes in the IPPS final rule. Um, 
really a, a, a very substantive issue of quality, quality concerns as well in some of the PPS exempt facilities. So recommend you check that out if you haven't already. Again, that is available for uh, ACTUS members to download on the uh, ACTUS website. All right, so with that, we're going to wrap up. That will do it for today's edition of Actus Radio. We'll be back, please note, in one week, one week, folks, for a special edition uh, 2018 CDI Pocket Guide preview. We're going to be having our CDI Pocket Guide authors, Richard Pence and Cynthia Tang, to look inside the new Pocket Guide. It won't be a commercial. They're going to be actually talking about some of the content in there and, and that, what that means and um, hopefully providing you some tips as you move into the fiscal year 2018. So as always, if you have any suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, whether you like today's mailbag format, please send me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. That will do it. Again, thank you, Dr. Kennedy and Alan, and we'll see you again in one week, everyone. Take care.